this is equipping hour, so that means this uh, is the time we're really uh, focusing on uh, learning some tools and skills we need to uh, minister as a church for Christ. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you uh, for the opportunity that we have to uh, be together as a church. What a, what a privilege that you have made us one body. We are family, God. Not pretending to be family, but we are family because of what you have done, Jesus. You have adopted us, God the Father. You've adopted us into your family uh, through the work of Christ. And so we praise you for that. You've made us brothers and sisters with one another. And you've given us this huge privilege and responsibility of helping each other grow and helping each other make it to heaven and helping each other uh, glorify you. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to do uh, this great work in our church, Lord. Whatever we need to change, uh, cause us to change. What, what, wherever we need to grow, make us grow. Because uh, more than anything, uh, we want to be a faithful church. We want to be a church that obeys you, that does what you want us to do, that lives how you want us to live. And uh, we know we can't do that apart from your help. So even use this equipping hour to uh, help us to take one step forward to be more like uh, Christ. And uh, we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, all right. Uh, this is kind of a special Sunday for me because it is a, a year, basically, since I've been at uh, Cornerstone Bible Church. So, uh, well, <laughs> thanks, sure. <laughs> so, uh, and so uh, we've really had a great year and uh, so thankful for all that God's done in our lives and uh, here at the church and um, also looking forward to the years ahead. And uh, one of our big prayers uh, is that we would continue to be a church that grows in our ability to make disciples. So if there is uh, one thing that we want to be good at as a church, it is uh, developing life-transforming friendships. So we want to be a place uh, where people come and they are loved and they develop real, genuine relationships with other people that enable them to change. And I know uh, that is sometimes uh, feels like a big call. You know, it would be easier just to maybe in a sense would feel easier if we were just a place where we came and sat and went and did our thing. Uh, and uh, none of us really feel qualified, life-transforming friendships that when you look at yourself, that kind of feels like too much. But this is a big part of success for us as a church. We want to be people who are changing and who are good at developing relationships with others where we help them change. Um, but obviously we know pursuing those kinds of relationships is not going to be easy, uh, but that's okay. There is a lot of good stuff that's not easy. And uh, we need to do even if we're not great at it. I heard someone say one time that it's worse to succeed in what Jesus doesn't care about than it is to struggle as you seek to do what he actually cares about. So it's worse to be great at something Jesus doesn't care about. We don't, you know, as a church, want to be just amazing at things that don't matter to Jesus. We would rather struggle <laughs> to do what actually does matter to Jesus. And so uh, we don't want to spend our energy and time doing things that don't matter to God when we aren't at least trying to do what does matter to God, even when it's difficult. And uh, so uh, one thing 
And one way we're trying to make those kinds of relationships easier as a church is uh, through these transformation groups that we're going to be putting into place. Hopefully by March, we're going to kickstart transformation groups, which would be uh, two to four people that meet twice a month for the purpose of accountability, friendship, discipleship, change. And uh, if you've been coming, you know we're keeping it pretty flexible. I'm not giving you a curriculum, which is freaking uh, some of us out, but... Uh, I am trying to give you a process, uh, some of the key elements that should be true of every uh, discipleship relationship. And you remember we talked about, it's not like rocket science, we talked about caring about the person, loving the person, getting to know them, who they really are, not just the external facts, but the heart, helping them interpret their life and what's happening in their life biblically, and then speaking truth or you might say uh, teaching. And we've been spending a little time on teaching because teaching truth is such a big part of discipleship. So you can't really think about discipleship apart from teaching, especially since Jesus said, make disciples, teaching them. So uh, discipleship relationships involve teaching. And yet that's the part that's probably intimidating for a lot of us. And I think that's where people are going to be like, well, I'm out. I don't want a disciple then, because I'm not anybody's teacher, I'm not anybody's guru, or something like that. And, of course, we're not asking you to be, but we are asking you to learn to teach. And uh, to help you do that, we're thinking about what teaching means in discipleship, and we began by talking about the importance of a formal kind of teaching. So discipleship often will involve uh, intentionally putting together almost a course of instruction, and we described a number of different elements you might include in that. And also, I'm putting some resources in a Google folder. Now, I'm not an expert in Google folders, so I hope that you got those. Uh, If you didn't get that, then I'm the only one enjoying that, but you're supposed to have access to that Google folder as a member. And uh, I'd encourage you to check that out because I'm continuing to try to update that with resources that you could use as you seek to disciple uh, others and maybe even just your own family. But that's not the only kind of teaching that's needed in discipleship, like sit down, formal instruction. And this is important because uh, sometimes when people think about discipling someone else, they think, oh, wow, he means I need to sit down and uh, lecture someone uh, for 45 minutes. Um, But the reality is maybe sometimes there are some situations where that would be helpful, Uh, But that's more what equipping hour is for, (laughs) and that's more uh, why I spend 20, 30 hours a week preparing sermons. That's more what that is for. That's not really usually the most profitable way to spend your time in discipleship relationships. Uh, Instead, a lot of the teaching you should be engaged in as you disciple others would be more informal. So it would be kind of life-on-life instruction. So an illustration of that would be you can learn how to maybe parent from listening to a lecture and, uh, or reading a book, and there's value in that. But in discipleship, it would be more like the person who's discipling you might actually have been in your house and seen the way that you parent. And so now they would sit down with you and they'd be like, okay, let's think about this. What you said there, what are you thinking there? How might you respond to your children in a more biblical way? And so what you're talking about 
when it comes to teaching and discipleship really uh, is giving life-on-life instruction, uh, where you speak into someone's life. And uh, this is something the Bible calls exhortation or correction, and uh, maybe especially correction. And I know a lot of us probably don't love that word correction. Uh, The more proud we are, the harder that word is for us. Um, I'm guessing that's probably why when I was young, my parents were always working with me how to receive correction. I don't know how many times we read through the book of Proverbs focusing on taking correction. And we would talk about it, and we would even practice it. Um, And they worked so hard on helping me learn how to receive instruction and correction because they knew I needed it. And the thing is, we all do. Even before a man fell, we needed instruction. Uh, Not correction, I suppose, but we needed counsel. And so needing instruction is part of being human. Um, Some people would say, well, maybe there's some humans out there that don't need instruction. No, then they're like a robot. Actually, probably robots need instruction too. I don't know robots. But humans need instruction. To be human is to need counsel. (laughs) Even before the fall. It's not like a breakdown. It's before the fall. Man needed outside counsel. And one of the consequences of the fall is that we're not born perfect, we're born sinners, and we don't only need counsel, we need correction. And that's, of course, even part of how we are Christians today. God used his word to correct us, to show us where we were wrong and how we needed a savior and that we needed to turn from our sin to Jesus. And so I know that sometimes we have this idea of a person who's really smart and uh, He doesn't need instruction or correction, but the only person like that is God. The rest of us, we need instruction, and we need correction, and we need a lot of it. And it makes sense that because we need a lot of instruction and correction, that we work at learning how to receive it. Uh, Some people, the way they try to set up their whole life is so that they don't have to receive correction. Um, So it makes sense that one of the things that we would need to do is talk about how to receive correction, but we don't only need help learning how to receive correction, we also need help knowing how to give correction, because this is a big part of discipling someone else. Uh, And the book of Proverbs makes that super clear. Proverbs is kind of a discipleship book, actually. Proverbs was written to help us gain wisdom, and wisdom is is what we're trying to help each other gain as we enter into these discipleship relationships. We're trying to help each other become wise. We're trying to help each other know how to apply God's word to the daily, regular, ordinary issues of life. And so what we're trying to do in discipleship is what Solomon's trying to do in Proverbs. And as Solomon seeks to help people become wise, you know what he keeps emphasizing over and over and over again? The indispensable role of instruction and correction. Proverbs 4.1. Hear, O son, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Proverbs 8.33, hear instruction and be wise. Proverbs 15.31, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Uh, Proverbs 15.32, he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 10.17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. So in Solomon's uh, mind, it's like there's two roads you can take in life. And on the one road, there's a lot of correction. There's a lot of instruction. And that road 
lead you to a meaningful, God-honoring life. And on the other road, it's quiet when it comes to correction. And that's the way to destruction. So two roads. If I want to get to Los Angeles, it's like there's only one freeway to get to Los Angeles. <laughs> and that's the, the path of correction. And so because there's all this value in good correction, we desperately want to get good at it. This is equipping hour. So uh, we want to equip each other to become good at giving correction, receiving correction well, but giving correction well. We need to know how to give correction in a way that does the most benefit for the people we're discipling. And so looking at Proverbs and some other scriptures, there are at least three keys to correcting well. Three keys to correcting well. First, we need to give correction for the right reasons. So when it comes to uh, giving correction, it sometimes seems like there's two kinds of people. Uh, one, there are people who love telling other people what they're doing wrong. And two, there are people who absolutely hate it. And both are usually a little bit wrong. Uh, because giving correction is not so much about what I like or what I don't like. It's about something much bigger than that. Why do we give correction? If you're going to give correction, well, you have to give it for the right reasons. It's not just because you like to tell people what to do. So why do you give correction? First, it's about obeying God. Why do I get involved in someone else's life and correct them? It's not because I'm opinionated if I'm doing it right. It's because this is part of what righteous people do. If you look at Proverbs, one way Proverbs describes the righteous person is as, as, as a person who talks and teaches others how to obey God. So Proverbs chapter 10, and you can turn there because there's a few verses in Proverbs 10 that illustrate this. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And so water in a dry place is obviously a big deal. You find a fountain, there's life there. And one of the characteristics of a righteous person is the way he communicates. There's life there. You meet a righteous person, it's like a, his mouth is a fountain, life coming out of it. And what does he say that gives life? Proverbs 10.13. Look at Proverbs 10.13. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. It is wisdom that is coming out of the righteous man's mouth that makes his speech so life-giving. If you look down at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 20 and 21, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. So the righteous person is known for the way he speaks, and what is it that makes his words so valuable? The lips of the righteous feed many. Some uh, would translate this verse, the lips of the righteous shepherd many. His words lead people in the right direction. How? Well, look at Proverbs 10.31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. So the righteous person leads people in the right direction by communicating wisdom. So a righteous person is someone who teaches you how to apply the scripture to life. And this is something you'll see again and again 
throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn from the snares of death. And I know this may be obvious for you, but for me this is important here because I am not by nature a person who likes to tell other people what to do. And uh, I don't like being told what to do. And I don't like telling people what to do, actually. So at least I'm not a hypocrite in that regard. But while there are times that that might be okay, uh, there are also times where it's not. It's not okay. Because one of the marks of a righteous person is his concern for others. He wants the best for them. And so obviously, if we're concerned about others, we're going to share with them what's most important, and that's truth. Uh, truth applied. In other words, uh, the righteous person doesn't just sit idly by. He speaks truth into people's lives, and sometimes doing that will require that we get into their lives and show them where they need to change. That's part of it. Look at what uh, Solomon says in Proverbs 19.25. He writes, Proverbs 19.25, Strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge, which is almost as close to a direct command as you can find in Proverbs. Uh, Reprove a man of understanding. I like being positive, and so I don't like the kind of instruction where you tell people they're wrong. But not all instruction is positive. And uh, we know that as parents, hopefully. Imagine if the only kind of instruction you ever gave your children was uh, positive, never corrective. Where would your kids end up if you uh, never told them they were wrong? They would end up as fools. And even uh, as we grow up, we need positive instruction for sure, but we also need some corrective instruction with discipline in it. The Bible calls us to this. Seeing sin and correcting it is something that should be happening in our relationships if we're going to be obedient. And not just in Proverbs, of course, uh, also in the New Testament. You can probably name passages that are more direct, like Matthew 18, Galatians 6. So when we talk about correcting others, why are we doing it? It's important to understand that we're not talking about thinking you're smarter than others. We're not talking about just having lots of opinions about where to put the remote control uh, or, you know, like how to hang the toilet paper. That's not what's to motivate us. It's about obedience, And we need to check our motives. We need to give instruction and correction for the right motives. And the first motivation is, I I need to share this because I I, I want to obey God. The second is because I love others, because we love others. So before you give correction, why are you giving it? Is it because I, I I want to obey God? Is it because I love the person I'm seeking to correct? Um, Which I need to hear because sometimes I think the reason I'm not correcting someone is because I love them. But a lot of times, the reason I'm not correcting them is because I love me. So we shouldn't think of correction as something we only do when we're annoyed enough to speak up. But instead, it's something we do because we care about people. It's a way of showing love to someone. And to prove that, we could just go back to God's way of dealing with us, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a, fa- as a father, the son in whom he delights. So who does God rebuke? The Lord reproves the one he loves, and because of that, we shouldn't get tired of his correcting us. 
I know we sometimes get frustrated with God because we want him to just let us go our own way. And that's how a lot of people think of love, just letting the person do whatever they want to. But it's not because there's a lot that we want to do that uh, will harm us if we do it. And God's not the kind of father who can look at us harming ourselves and harming others and not step in because he cares about us. And Solomon will go on to say that's not just true for the father. That's, uh, uh, that's not just true for God. Uh, that should be true of human fathers. Human fathers should model themselves after God and love their children like that. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And so we live in a world where wrong choices have wrong consequences. And so if you love someone, you want to protect them from those consequences. And one of the ways you do that is by being diligent in your teaching and diligent in your discipline and correction. I mean, that's part of why you discipline with um, pain, because you want to teach your children that sin produces pain in the real world. You don't discipline with pain because you like pain, but because you don't want your children to grow up in a fairy tale world. Once they get outside of your home, sin is going to produce pain. And so you want them to understand that. And that's why uh, one of the reasons why fathers who love their children discipline them and that's why good friends do the same. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So a friend, like a father, like God, is someone who loves us enough to wound us if necessary. And that's not, of course, how we like to think of it. We uh, like people telling us what we want to hear, some of us at least. But love that isn't willing to step out and show someone where they're wrong and need to change isn't a very profitable kind of love at all. And the point of all this, the reason why I'm reminding us of this, is because when you're correcting and instructing others, it should be because you're for them. That's the motivation. Sometimes it feels like people are against you when they're correcting you. Um, and sometimes that, that's because they are, but in the church, that's not the way it should be. Uh, it should be because we want the best for people. That should be our, our motivation. It's, if, it's, if it's just about us, we should be the people on the planet who are most willing to overlook. We should be known for you can stand on my feet for the longest time. Um, but when it's not just about us, we should want what is good for others and be willing to do the hard work of getting in there and helping them change and grow. That's one of the things that should be confusing about the church, actually. Because <laughs> in, uh, in the world, you have people who uh, are just super opinionated and have a lot of preferences, and they'll correct you all the time. And uh, the church shouldn't be like that. We should be the kind of people who are like, wow, those people can put up with a lot. Um, they just can put up with a lot. But also in the world, you have people that just overlook everything. and. Uh, the church isn't like that. There are issues that are really big and important to God that we need to correct each other on. And so that's why the church dynamic relationship should be a little funny to people in the world because like on the one hand, they're willing to overlook almost everything. And on the other hand, they're, they're in there and they're dealing with tough stuff and willing to correct and take things seriously. And one of the ways we prove that we really are for the good of the person we're trying to correct is by how much we stick with them when the change process is slow. 
So some of us are like, I love correcting people, so I'm doing great. You know, I'm not, this is like my Sunday school. Like, correction, woohoo, I got this, come to me. But how do we respond when they don't change right away? Are you willing to stay in there and work with them so that they can be transformed and restored? I think this is where churches uh, often go wrong. Sometimes we're willing to correct, but that's it. We're like, you're wrong. I'm gone. Uh, you got about 30 seconds to completely revolutionize your life after this correction. And if you don't, you know, like completely change everything that you've spent 40 years developing habits to do the wrong way, if you can't overcome those habits in the next 30 seconds after I just explained why you're wrong, then uh, you must be just really terrible. So we're done. But, you know, if we feel like we have the responsibility to correct someone, we should also feel like we kind of have the responsibility to love them and to help them after we've confronted them. So, like, I always ask myself that when I go to correct. I'm like, okay, Josh, you're going to correct this person. Are you willing to hang in there with them while they work at changing afterwards? And it's messy and it's kind of takes a while and it's difficult. If not then your love meter is too low as you're going in there to correct. And you need to get that right. So to give correction well, first we need to be doing it for the right reasons. And two of those reasons are because it's biblical and because it's loving. And when we go to correct, we should take some time to make sure we really have those motivations. Second, to give correction well, we need to make sure we're giving correction at the right time. The right reasons, the right time. Now, there are some people who feel like, if I have something to say, then it's always the right time. Um, it's always appropriate for me to say it. But that's not biblical, actually. We don't need to correct each other about everything, and it's not helpful to correct each other about everything. I could even go further. There are times where we actually do need to correct someone for something, but it, it's not the right moment for addressing it. And so we should wait and address the issue later. And uh, the New Testament makes that clear. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. You, you know this passage. Uh, this is one of the uh, most important texts in the scripture on communication. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And it's that just here right now we're, we're circling as fits the occasion. It could be the right word, but it doesn't fit the occasion. It's not the right time, and so it's not helpful. It's not really giving grace. And uh, so there are times where it would be more helpful to overlook a fault than it would be to make an issue out of it. It's not just automatic that you say something every time you think someone's doing something not quite right. And there are Proverbs as well that would indicate this. So if you go back to Proverbs chapter 26, making you work and flip to the, hey, Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and, and, and 5. Proverbs 26 says, The answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And so what's he saying? He's saying there are times where someone's acting like a fool and you shouldn't correct him. Otherwise, you're going to make a bigger mess. 
On the other hand, the very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so uh, Solomon is not contradicting himself. Instead, he's making it clear that in life, not every situation is the same. Uh, you're going to have to think as you deal with people, is this the right time to say it? Or is this not the right time to say it? For example, Proverbs 17, 14. Solomon says, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit the quarrel. Uh, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. And so you see there, there's a disagreement over how something should be done. And Solomon's saying there are times when it's wiser just to let it go. A couple of chapters later, Proverbs 19, 11, picks up that idea and explains. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook his, an offense, which seems to indicate to me that there are times where it is honorable to overlook something someone does wrong. And one of the times, uh, one of the differences between a wise person and a fool is that the wise person knows when it would be better just to be quiet. Proverbs 12, 16. The vexation of a fool, that means like the uh, annoyance of a fool, is known at once. But the prudent ignores an insult. In other words, every time the foolish person is a little concerned about how something is happening, he has to say it. Every time it's not going his way. And we can say that a little more positively. Proverbs 15, verse 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. And the point is, when we say something at the right time, what a blessing it is when our words are in season. And the question, of course, is how do we know? How do we know it's the right time? Is this something I need to step in and correct about? Or is this something I should be patient about and kind of ignore? And this is one of the things that requires real wisdom because in every situation, things are a little bit different. But let me give you two things that you need to think about if you're going to answer that question. Should I correct? Is this the right time? Do I have the right motives? Is it the right time? Two things that you should think about. First of all, think about yourself. <laughs> and uh, we, we know to do this because Jesus says in Matthew 7, 5, that if you're going to take the log out of someone else's eye, you need to try to take, um, or if you're going to take the speck out of someone else's eye, you need to take the log out of your own eye. Um, so think about what's driving you. What is it that's making you so upset? One of the best questions you can ask yourself is, why am I upset? And then ask it twice. Always ask that question twice. Why am I upset? It's because of what they did, because I'm just so concerned about their good. No, ask it one more time. But really, why are you so upset? What are you most bothered about? Um, sometimes when you go to correct someone else, the reason you're able to see the problem is because you, you do the same thing. <laughs> It's just so much harder for us to see sin in ourselves than it is to see sin in someone else. So in general, just humans are really good at seeing principles and very bad at seeing the particular way we're breaking those principles. So you'll meet someone and they're like against adultery, except in the case where they're committing adultery. All of a sudden, God just wants them to be happy or something. And so we can see pretty easily where we think others are going wrong because we're good at the principle, but often uh, it's hard for us to see the way we do the same thing. 
And that's why we need to be a little hard on ourselves because we're great at justifying our own behavior. And so when it comes to correcting someone else, we need to make sure that we're not being soft on ourselves and hard on others. Know yourself. If you're the kind of person who hates correcting, then maybe you need to watch out that you don't give yourself too many excuses for not getting in there and saying something. If you're the kind of person who's always correcting, you should probably ask yourself, why am I always feeling the need to tell other people what to do? Know yourself. Second, consider the issue. So is it the right time? Think about yourself. What, what's really driving me here? Then second, uh, think about the issue. So before you instruct or correct someone on something specific, there are two questions you can ask yourself about the issue. And the first, one, first question you can ask yourself is how important is this issue really? How important is this issue really? To answer that, you're going to need to ask some more questions. So how important is this issue really? Is it a preference or is it a principle? And if it's principle, where do you find it in the Bible? And you kind of want to hammer this one because for some of us, we think all of our preferences are principles. And if we do something a certain way, then it's because it has to be done that way when it really might be just a preference, and it might be a good preference, but a personal preference and not a principle. Another way to say this would be, is this an area the Bible speaks clearly about, or is this an application that's a little more gray? And I'm not saying that you don't ever talk to people about gray areas, but if you know it's gray before you go in, then you're going to be careful not to speak as authoritatively about that as you would a clear principle. So to keep going, you know, thinking about how important the issue is, you might ask, first of all, is it a preference or is it a principle? You might also ask, how much harm is being done by what they're doing? For example, if you have a friend who uh, always says the last book of the Bible is Revelations, instead of Revelation, you might say, well, I, maybe I don't need to correct him about this. Um, or at least I don't need to rebuke him for that, unless maybe he's your pastor. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Or if someone's driving somewhere and they take a route you wouldn't take and you think it's going to take them 10 minutes longer if they go that way, how much harm is being done really in those 10 minutes? That's not something you need to go out of your way to correct, correct at all. On the other hand, you've got this friend who's looking at pornography and you know the long-term damage of that to him and his family and you can't just say, hey, what's the harm? Because you know the Bible makes it clear that's deadly. Another question, as you think about how important this issue is, you might say, you might ask yourself, is what they're doing something that's going to cause a whole lot of unnecessary pain, or is it going to be a difficulty that they will learn from? My mom would always talk about fire versus swing issues. And so swing issues are the ones where your child might fall off the swing, and they're not going to be seriously hurt. So you're like, well, I guess they're going to learn uh, not to swing that way. And so it might actually be good for you to just let them fall uh, so they can learn that what they need to learn. But there are other times, like maybe when they're going to stick their hand in a fire, and you can't just let them do that because it's going to cause too much damage. So is it a habitual sin? Is it once and out of character? Is it something that they're stuck in and they don't know it? So if you're going to go rebuke someone who just confessed their sin to you, that would be strange. They're like... I'm sorry I lied. And you're like, well, you are such a liar. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. And you're like, lying is so wrong. Why do you do that? No, what they need for you in that moment is for you to help them change. On the other hand, say you're talking to someone 
and they don't see themselves well. So you have this husband who's treating his wife in a terrible way, and you ask him, how do you think you're doing as a husband? And he's like, I am great. I'm like amazing at being a husband. Then you need to stop in and you need to step in and be like, well, I'm not so sure, sure about that. Again, to keep going, evaluating the issue. Is this a preference or a principle? How much harm is being done? Is it a habitual sin or even a habit that they're not noticing and not working on changing? And is this something that really concerns the heart of the gospel? Or is it more a minor difference where no vital truth is at stake? So I know sometimes we get worked up on certain issues, but those issues are more our personal quirks. Uh, we're really big on this, and the fact is most godly people aren't. I know for me there's a couple issues wherever, uh, whenever somebody talks about those issues, my ears perk up and I'm ready to jump into the conversation and correct. And sometimes that's okay, but other times I'm making an issue where I don't really need to make one. And so when you're trying to figure out whether you need to correct someone, you need to look at the issue and ask, how important is this issue? Second, ask yourself, how sure am I about my answer? <laughs> how important is the issue? How sure am I? In other words, do I know I'm right? How important is the issue and how certain am I about, about it? If I'm really going to correct, uh, not just bring up as a thought. You know, sometimes you might with your friends say, ah, I see this, I'm thinking about it. Uh, what do you think about it? But if you're going to go in there and correct, you need to ask, what proof do I have that what I think is happening is really happening? Because there are times when something's really an important issue, but all you have is suspicions. You don't actually know for sure, and so you're not really in a position to correct. Instead, you're just in a position to investigate or do further discussion. Like for an example, uh, an issue that we, that's important but we don't know for certain would be something like, what day is Jesus coming back? <laughs> we know he's coming back. That's important. We can correct on that. But we don't, and we, we also know that we don't know what day he's coming back. We can correct on that. But if you think Thursday and I think Friday, it would be silly to argue about that. Wrong. And if you're discipling someone, you need to be careful. Uh, when you know something is important, but you lack information about it, you need to be careful about how much hardcore correcting you do, or at least how you go about correcting because uh, you don't want to be one of those guys who's always shouting where the Bible's whispering. And then there are times where something's really important, or what, then there are times when something's not really important at all, and you don't know much about it. So it's not important, and it's not certain. Like, say, did George Washington ever wear orange socks? Who knows? Probably somebody. But who cares? And you're going to waste a lot of time if you do much correcting on people, uh, much correcting of people on stuff like that. And then, of course, there are times when you're really, really sure about something, but the issue isn't important. Like which, which uh, maybe, you know, in a family, which airline you took on a vacation five years ago. If you're having a conversation with someone and your wife says, yeah, we flew Delta, and I, knew, I know we flew something else, it's hard to see how it, it would be important for me to correct her on that. No, it was... It was uh, it was Continental. No, it was Delta. No, it was Continental. And in front of all these people, how actually is the relationship advanced and the person encouraged by that? Now, all of this is pretty practical. I remember having a concern with someone where I thought they weren't really being loving. And then I had to think, what proof do I have of that? And I got some counsel from others. And when we talked through the proof I had, 
Some of them, uh, people I respected, saw things differently. They didn't think my proof was as certain as I did. And in that case, I submitted myself to their direction. It was an important issue. But I didn't have enough certainty that I was right to really follow through with verve on it. I could bring it up, perhaps, to the person as something to think about. But it wasn't something that I had enough proof to be able to follow through. Other times, I've known people who were confronted about important issues. But you know, the people who did the correcting never investigated what was happening. They acted as if they had more information than they did. They never stopped and considered, how sure are we about this, before they did the correcting. They didn't even ask any questions of the person they were correcting, and that's foolish. And so what I'm trying to say in all this, when it comes to discipling others, part of the job is exhortation and correction. That's one of the advantages of these sort of smaller relationships. It would be kind of awkward you know, in a group this big for me to be like, uh, Bailey, I want to correct you on uh, what you said yesterday or something. That, that, that's not really the place for it. But, one of the, but yet we need it. And so one of the gifts God gives us are relationships where we can sh show we love and talk about specific kinds of issues. Um, and uh, we need to think. Is this the right issue to talk about? Because you want to reserve your strong correction, the strong kind of correction, where you're like, oh, I'm in this, for the kinds of issues that are of great importance and that you're dead certain about. Because we'll wear people out if we're constantly correcting them about issues in their life that don't matter, or we're constantly correcting them about issues that we don't have good information about. Uh, which brings me to just a final one minute, <laughs> third key to giving good correction. And maybe we'll look at this next time. But to give correction well, we must uh, learn to give correction in the right manner. Right reasons, right time, right manner. And uh, one word that comes up for the Apostle Paul when he talks about the right manner to give correction is the word gentle. So Galatians 6.1 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, write it down, our time is up. But look up those verses. When Paul talks about giving correction, he talks about doing so gently. Gentleness is important when it comes to correcting others well. Uh, but what is gentleness? What does it mean to be gentle? Um, and we have to think a little bit about that because uh, the concept seems vague and uh, because our culture defines gentleness one way when gentleness in the Bible might look very different than our culture. I think it definitely does. And so even in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says to correct gently. He says, restore in a spirit of gentleness. But he says to restore someone else gently in the very same book where he says, who has bewitched you? He says, if you preach a false gospel, you're damned. <laughs> and he opposes Peter to his face. So that's a little different than our culture thinks about gentleness, obviously, if Paul could rebuke and correct that way in the very same book where he calls us to gentleness. And so you're going to have to do this on your own because I'm over my time. But one way to learn what gentleness means is to look at a definition. I read this week uh, one Greek dictionary defines gentleness like this, not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's a different kind of definition of gentleness than we might come up with. But the word for gentle 
That's how one Greek dictionary defines it. Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own importance. If you look at phrases in the Bible where um, time, if you look at times in the Bible where the word gentle is used with opposite phrases, you'll see that gentleness is in lists where it's the opposite of being quarrelsome, being jealous, being selfishly ambitious, being bold in the wrong way. Another way to understand gentleness, again, you could do this on your own because of time, but Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, restore him in a spirit of gentleness, and then he starts to define what that process would look like, and he says things like this, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. He says, bear one another's burdens. He says, for if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And so I think Paul here is basically explaining what it means to be gentle. It means that you're humble, even as you correct. This is not about you getting your own way. It's not about you being better than the other person. It's not about you just wanting that person to change so your life is easier. This is about you loving the person. You're really not in it. <laughs> it's not about you. This is about you loving the person you're speaking to. And we need to, we need to really evaluate our hearts as we go to instruct others. Are we doing it uh, for the right reasons? Are we doing it at the right time? And are we doing it in the right manner? It's so easy when you correct, even if you go in in the right manner. For self is always kind of following you around, you know? <laughs> and it wants to sneak in there and get right in the middle of it and blow the whole thing up. And so Paul's saying, as you go to correct others, you lock the door on self, keep self outside. And, and, uh, and then you'll be able to correct them in a way that's actually good, good for, for them. Um, and uh, as we talk about transformation groups, we are talking about groups where uh, hopefully we're going to develop the kinds of relationships where we're able to do correction. And uh, that shouldn't scare us because we need, that's like the road, part of the road to, uh, to wisdom. But if we're going to get involved in that kind of teaching, we really need to make sure uh, that we're doing it the way God calls us to do it. Otherwise, we can really hurt people and complicate life and situations and um, do, do damage. So let's pray that uh, God makes us a church that receives correction well and that learns how to give correction well. Um, thanks, guys. We have about half hour or so uh, before uh, our worship service where we get to sing and uh, enjoy God and hear from his word. But let me uh, just close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you have given us what we need to know to live a life that honors you and is good for others. And one part of it is uh, correcting, instructing the righteous person uh, loves to communicate truth. His mouth is a fountain of wisdom. Um, Lord, we're not wise naturally. <laughs> and so we ask for your spirit. We thank you that we have your spirit to help us correct well, but we're also thankful that we have your word. So help us to be willing to do the work so that we can become people whose mouths feed many, whose mouths shepherd many, whose mouths bless many. Um, because we're speaking the way that our King Jesus wants us to. And we pray this in his name. Amen.